0: Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary, the great platform that provides you with numerous fantastic podcasts. Not just this one, although hopefully this one is among them. I mean, you're listening to this one now. This week, I spoke to Dr. Katie Mack, a theoretical astrophysicist and cosmologist. She understands the maths of the universe. Can you imagine? I'll tell you a bit more about her. There's some uh, comments on the episode we did a couple of weeks ago with Dr. Philip Goff on panpsychism. Qualifio James says, panpsychism is an awesome idea to explore. I'm so glad it's getting some spotlight. You're such a gem. Thanks so much. I like to be called a gem in that way. Right365, I'm so glad this is being talked about more openly, says, and there's an extraterrestrial face. Yes, it's about time we got panpsychism (laughs) out of its closet. Are you all right there, Jen? Jen is the producer yep. of the show. What have you been doing? <laughs> Moving stuff. Moving stuff and online dating.
1: No, I don't have any apps.
0: You don't have any app. No. But I understand a few people have approached you <laughs> as a result of our conversations. <laughs> yeah. Are they appropriate? No. What do you require, chiselled <laughs> people? Any. They're not chiselled. They're not. Any gender, any colour, but you—by God, you better be chiselled. <laughs> You want people actually
1: chiselled. Actually chiselled. <laughs> so if you're thinking
0: of asking Jenny May Finn for a date, go look at your face <laughs> and body. I like thin. It doesn't have to be. Look at your chiseled, thin body. But I am. Yeah. You like them to be wretched. <laughs> Not wretched. You just like painfully thin, <laughs> chiselled people on the very precipice of malnutrition. <laughs> okay. Well, if that's if it's you that's being described there. You could be talking to Jen. And remember, soon you might think this is a frivolous, light-hearted, pointless bit of chit-chat. But in a minute, you're going to be listening to an astrophysicist and cosmologist. So be grateful for some frivolity because things are going to get intense in a minute. Stinthestrt says, fascinating episode and has a sort of a picture of a swirling vortex. Peter Reason he says, not just a theory of consciousness but a perspective on the nature of the cosmos and all that is in it that's right, that's what we offer on this pod- c- podcast not just a theory of consciousness that's no use to anybody we want a perspective on the nature of the cosmos are you awake, says uh, of of. Uh, to speaking of panpsychism, could this explain the energy you feel in a football stadium or a concert when the crowd is at sync, hmm emoji In my humble opinion, different states of consciousness are like different radio station wavelengths, which you can tune into with the help of things like meditation. I think you're right there. Are you awake? Equals one in ten, truly are. Two neurons, two nirvana. I agree with you entirely. Now, let's get into this podcast with um, Katie Mack. Throughout her career, she studied dark matter, although she kind of studied extensively because the bloody stuff's invisible and very difficult to detect she'll have studied the things that are around dark matter to see if they're responding to dark matter i now know from listening to her the early universe galaxy formation black holes cosmic strings and the ultimate fate of the cosmos she's currently assistant professor of physics at north carolina state university she's a regular columnist in cosmos magazine what do you mean don't read it cosmos magazine is a good magazine. do you read cosmos jen You read Cosmo, but not Cosmos, don't you? Oh, no. Do you not read Cosmo?
1: Was that sexist? I don't think it was sexist. (laughs) Who reads Cosmo?
0: Sexists? (laughs) (laughs) You sexist pigs sat there with your Cosmos. Jenny, you wouldn't be able to understand cosmopolitan. You're a rural bumpkin.
1: (laughs) No, I'm bringing it to the... Place. Mm-hmm. I'm bringing it to, I'm bringing the cosmopolitanness to. No, no, no I don't yeah. think that's
0: what's happening at all. <laughs> she contributes to publications such as Scientific American, Slate, and Time. Katie's new book, The End of Everything, astrophysically speaking, is released in August. And if her conversation is anything to go by, it's be a mere riveting and challenging book. Let's get into that conversation right now. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a no, successful that, route. Yes,
1: that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology.
0: What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told. And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. Dr. Katie Mack, thank you very much for coming onto Under the Skin to explain astrophysics and cosmology to me.
1: I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. <sighs>
0: I've um, I'm excited by, well, you know, what little I understand of m- numerous aspects of your work. And can you explain to us what uh? theoretical astrophysics is does that mean like the mathematical theoretical side of physics
1: yeah so what it means is the the theory of how things work uh in the cosmos in general and and the the subfield i'm in is cosmology which is the study really of everything the universe from beginning to end how it changes over time what it's made of and the kind of theory i do is somewhat mathematical, some, somewhat computational, but it's basically kind of trying to think about if we have some idea of how the universe works, some theory of physics, some model of particle interactions, or whatever. What does that translate to in terms of what we could actually see in the sky? You know, so I don't, I don't use telescopes, I don't do experiments, and I don't even really create new theories. What I do is I try and make the connections between the mathematical theory and the practical reality of what we could actually see or detect or study with our instruments. So it's a fun space to be in because it's very creative. You know, it's very, you know, well, what if, you know, what if this is true mathematically? What does that really mean? Like, how does that affect stars and galaxies and black holes and and the universe itself? So it's, it's a lot of fun.
0: How is it that mathematics, which is a, I suppose, on some level, a type of language, maps on to the laws of physics and nature so perfectly. And what does that suggest? The fact that there are rules and seeming intelligence?
1: Well, it's the way I think of it is it's it's a tool that we have to understand the world. And the what we try to do in physics, the the kind of the basic idea of physics, the basic point of it is to try to build a mathematical model that we can use as a tool to understand how the universe works. And so we take some kind of data and we say we we say how does this fit into this picture that we're constructing? So it's kind of like trying to draw a blueprint, you know, based on a couple of photos or something like that. And we we take a photo here and we can say, "Oh, this is, you know, this is how it works in this area." And then we take another photo somewhere else and we say, "This is how it works over there." And what we're trying to do is is build kind of like a 3D model in our mind. Of how it all fits together, based on just a few little snapshots, and so the mathematics is is just the tool we use for that, and it's the most it's the most versatile language we have to talk about how things fit together in the universe, how interactions between particles happen, you know, fields and stuff like that. Um, it's the it's the clearest way we can analyze our data. It's the clearest way we can talk to each other. Um, and it seems that, you know, the universe obeys certain mathematical rules, you know, it, it, seems to be consistent. And so we, our tools are only as good as, you know, how well they work to actually let us explain things, actually let us predict things. And so we, we use these tools until they stop working and then we've developed new ones or we've refined the tools and, you know, maybe, so we're building this, this, you know, we have this blueprint, we're building this sort of 3d model in our brains and if we take a new snapshot somewhere and and it doesn't fit with that model that we have, we have to change the model or, or create a new one, and that's that's kind of the way we we think about it all day. But it's it's fun because in the mathematics there's there's so much beauty and symmetry and uh, you know just these incredible conceptual constructs that we that we put together and so we have this parallel between the the beauty of the cosmos itself and then the beauty of the the mathematical tools we're using to understand it it's it's a it's a wonderful space to work in
0: can you explain uh, e- e- anecdotally um a, an example of that symmetry and beauty that we might understand
1: uh, yeah, so the so when we when we look at uh, subatomic particles, uh, so you know we there are a number of particles that are that our bodies and so on are made of, right? We have um, protons and electrons and and neutrons, and these all come to, together to form atoms. But be, below that, there are quarks. So protons are built out of these different flavors of quarks, and um, there are other subatomic, there are other sort of fundamental particles like neutrinos and tau mesons, like all sorts of things. And when you look at the properties of those particles, you can put them together in these tables, kind of like a periodic table, where certain particles, you can swap them out and they, they act almost the same. And so there are these things we call symmetries, where if you do an experiment with a tau particle or with an electron there's a certain symmetry to how these particles act with each other act with other particles and and so you can you can figure out relationships between them you can put these on you know kind of these amazing diagrams and use mathematical group theory kind of things to to compare the um, the relationships between them and uh, and I don't know I'm probably not explaining it very well but but we we conceptualize different, theories of nature by things like rotational symmetries. So the theory that explains how electromagnetism works has something in common with the the way that things look the same if you rotate them around a circle. And how to, how to conceptualize that if you're not sort of living in the mathematics is kind of complicated, but it's, uh, you know, we use these kinds of, these ideas of symmetry all the time. Um, uh, if you do a kind of experiment and it's time reversal symmetric, meaning you can do it forward, you can do it backward, the same thing works, then that tells you that uh, that energy is conserved in that experiment. So there are relationships between the between the symmetries of the of the theory and the sort of practical aspects of doing the experiment, and that's all wrapped up in in a theorem called Noether's theorem, which is. Named after one of the great mathemat- mathematicians of physics, but this idea of symmetry is just a hugely big deal, and it's uh, it gets it gets really I don't know, deep <laughs> at some point.
0: Why Why is the idea of symmetry a big deal?
1: Uh, because it's it's the way that we it's the way that we put together all of our theoretical constructs. So the you know the if you find a symmetry in your theory, that means that you've found something deep and fundamental, and something simple mm-hmm. in the theory, and that means that you're onto something. Basically, it means that there's 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 some deeper, more um, more profound connection between two things if you find a symmetry between them, and mm. that's kind of how we we do all of this, like that's how the that's how the periodic table of elements came together as you, you know, they, they found that the kind of um, experiment they could do with neon was was kind of uh, similar to the experiments they could do with other noble gases, um, like xenon or whatever. And so that told them that those two elements had something in common. And later on, it turned out that, yeah, the thing they had in common was uh, was how the electrons are put together around the shell of the, of the atom. And that told you something really deep about how matter fits together. And so in chemistry, you find these symmetries in the sense that you find similar kinds of reactions with different elements tell you those elements have something in common, and that something in common is something that's that's really deep that you might not be able to directly observe, but it it tells you about the structure of those elements. And with particle physics, it's, it's the same. We see a symmetry between how a part uh, how a, an experiment works with a muon or a tau particle and that tells you that those two particles have something deep in common that that's a fundamental aspect of their nature or or you know something uh, you can find symmetries with um i don't know uh, changing the charge of a particle and changing the uh, and reversing the time uh, the the way you do the experiment and that's called cp symmetry and that means something deep about like the nature of the interactions between the particles, so it's it gets it gets complicated uh, real fast if you're if you're not sort of living in group theory. But it's also it's also this this tool where the fundamental thing we're trying to do is find how things are connected, how they're similar, and how they're simpler than we actually are are perceiving. You know what is what's really at the at the heart of it, and how is all of this stuff that we're seeing actually part of one big picture. That kind of unites everything that's what we're really always trying to find
0: yes it must be interesting to operate on that plane of perception and then to exist personally and culturally as well it must feel kind of transcendent sometimes
1: yeah it's there's you do you do get the these moments of experiencing a, a, a kind of an appreciation of the beauty of of the universe um, that's more than just you know pretty pictures of galaxies or whatever. It's it's more about understanding that that it all you know the physics all makes sense and is is sort of beautifully formed in a way that's 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 very clean and logical. Um, and and yet there are these these very strange aspects, right? Quantum mechanics is extremely weird. Uh, and weird things happen that you can't directly predict. You You can say things about probabilities, but you can't say this, you know, A happens and therefore B will happen. There's There's some fuzziness around it and that's strange, but the mathematics of it is very simple and clear and logical. And it's just that when you solve the equation, what you get at the end is a probability instead of an answer and that's that's weird but it still it still gives you some hints about this this fundamental logic behind everything and there there is there is something nice about the idea that that at a at a subatomic level everything really does make sense even if everything else is chaos around you you know if you're if you're living in a world where it seems that that you know it's all incredibly complicated and and unpleasant and messy and, you know, you'll never, you'll never get your head around it. But if you dig down deep enough to the, to the really fundamental level of physics, it is logical. It is clean. It does make sense. And we don't understand it all yet, but the, you know, you can do an experiment and and have it come out the same way every time. And that's, that's nice.
0: Yeah, that must be satisfying amidst the chaos. Yeah. Except for, as you said, like that sometimes w- the equations are producing probability yeah. rather than certainty, and that seems like there's a little crack for chaos to sneak back in through
1: yeah.
0: there. Yeah. Um. And I was wondering um, that when you are operating in the theoretical space in the subparticular world. That, uh, what do you discover there that can be mapped on to, as, well, to, according to your definition, which obviously I accept that cosmos includes anything, but what um, what that can be found in the sub-particular world can be mapped on to a more grander cosmic movements? Do you see things in the sub-particular world where you think, oh, well, wow, that's the same as what's happening at the level of galaxies and stuff?
1: Uh, I mean, one thing that, that is is amazing is how much um how many how many ways the the physics of the very small can impact the physics of the very large when you think about things cosmologically Um, because what we see in the cosmos today is directly related to what was happening at the very beginning of the universe on extremely small scales so so let me give you an example now this is some of this is You know, people still argue about whether or not um, whether or not this really happened. But we think that at the very beginning of the universe in the first tiny, tiny fraction of a second, the universe went underwent a process called inflation, where the universe expanded very, very rapidly for a short period of time. And during that time, during that expansion, the expansion was going on. The, you know, the universe was the part of the universe we're in now, like the 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 extent of the observable universe we can see, which is billions and billions of light years across, that was contained in an extremely tiny space, right? Like subatomic kind of space. And because of that, because that was this tiny, tiny space at the time, the behavior of that space was governed by quantum mechanics because it was, you know, it was little and little things are governed by quantum mechanics. So there's this sort of inherent fuzziness to it, right? And so as this expansion was happening, what it did is it took that inherent little fuzziness and expanded it and blew it up to you know, cosmological scales. And what that did in the end was it created little bits of space that are a little bit higher density over here. So there's a little bit more matter in one spot and a little bit less matter in another spot. And then over time, gravity pulled the more matter into the places where there was a lot of matter and, and left uh, the other places more empty and when we look at the patterns of galaxies in the sky today, like entire galaxies, you know, collections of millions or billions of stars, we see that the pattern they make in the sky, the, the locations they are, how far apart they are from each other, maps directly to what it would be if the whole sky, if the, all of those things were governed by these quantum fluctuations in the very early universe. So we can, say, we can, we can actually see quantum fluctuations in the sky based on on our understanding of how a little bit a little fluctuation here made a little bit more density and that turned into a cluster of galaxies over 13.8 billion years and the the pattern that we see like the the distribution of of things in space is perfectly consistent with that so we took that the universe took that tiny that those tiny little fluctuations from quantum mechanics and created Entire clusters of galaxies, clusters of galaxies—not a—not a single galaxy with a hundred million stars or whatever—but, but you know, dozens and dozens of them held together by dark matter and with, you know, hot plasma in between them. Those, that huge, unbelievably huge construct, is the result of a little quantum fluctuation of something subatomic at the beginning of the universe. Bloody
0: hell! Yeah. So, on a theoretical level, there could be a mathematical equation that you could demonstrate and prove. And that would work regardless of the scale that you're applying it to. It could be a cluster of galaxies or some tiny little quantum quark thing. And it would the the mathematical pattern would be the same. Is that right? Well, so the, ma- understood the, it? The,
1: the equation that governs quantum mechanical, the equation that governs small things in the early universe led to the big things that we see today. So, so that if you, if you allow for that evolution, then yes. In the daily, mm. in our daily life now, there are certain things that do apply to particles and also apply to, you know, a ball rolling down a hill or whatever. Um, but mm. the the difference is with the particles, you get this little bit of fuzziness, and uh, and it's hard to get rid of that. But with when you have the whole space of time, you know, the whole mm. universe, the whole thirteen point eight billion years, you can you can take that quantum flu- quantum fluctuation fuzziness and create an entire cosmos out of it
0: because what well, it evolves in the same way that we would understand in biology there are adaptations and mutations and things
1: there yeah there are there's growth you know there's there's change over time right. and 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 the universe is always changing you know the 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 nature of of the cosmos today is very different than it was you know 10 billion years ago and it's very different than it'll be 100 billion years in the future so we are are of our, our Evolution is occurring. It's not occurring due to the same kinds of forces as biology, but it's—you know—we are—we are changing. Our cosmos is changing.
0: And those forces of biology would necessarily be housed within the superstructure of physics, just because of it. in there
1: sure yeah i mean everything everything uh everything is physics at some point right (laughs) you can't uh right you can't take every you can't take anything entirely out of physics
0: katie your book the end of everything um what what is that A kind of a timeline for the universe or
1: it's so it's a it's a discussion of the future of the cosmos and how it's going to end so the When I was thinking about writing this book, I was thinking like there are a lot of books about the beginning of the universe. There are a lot of books about, you know, uh, where we came from, but there are very few books about where we're going. And I wanted to explore the question of, you know, what's what's going to happen next? You know, how is the universe going to end? Are we going to are we going to collapse into a a sort of, you know, big crunch and and end in this fiery death? Is it going to be expansion forever and this kind of cold? fading away like what's what's what does the future look like and what do what are the current theories the current experiments and observations tell us about that and so the the book goes through several different possibilities and you know what you would see if you were there uh, if you were watching the universe end and how, how we're figuring it out why we even bother to think about this stuff like what's what's even the point of extrapolating into the future so it's it's really um, it's, it's a way to, to think about the cosmos as a whole, but in the context of the ultimate destruction of it. And, and then, you know, and also a little bit about what does that mean? Like if the universe really is going to end, if, if everything in the cosmos that we see today is going to be destroyed, like, does that, does that affect us? Like, how do we, how do we think about that? Cause that's, that's, I, I feel like that's a very confronting thought, you know, that, that someday we'll all be gone and forgotten and erased
0: like existentially. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what does it mean to have a legacy if at some point that legacy ends because the cosmos is over.
0: Right? Yes, it means nothing. It means nothing. Um and like I was thinking there about what you were saying about scale that we're we like I heard someone once say that we curate our reality due to our sensory experience, which I suppose is obvious, but that is all that is happening at scale. We're not uh, conscious of what's happening at a subparticular level or in a, a galactic level, but that is simultaneously happening. So in a way, even our presence in time is governed by the limitations of the senses. And so what I feel like is, in a way, those things are already... They're already happening. They've all that because of their inevitability, because of their mathematical and cosmological inevitability, it's sort of fate accompli. You know, it's yeah. happened already.
1: I mean there's there's a way of picturing of of discussing space-time where the past and the future are are not are not really distinct at all. So so when you think about the universe in a relativistic way. So, if you think about general relativity, Einstein's theory of gravity, and special relativity is, is theory of of how how time works when you're moving quickly. Um, the the idea of past and future and now and and when things are simultaneous and and how time moves gets all very very strange, right? So, so if you think about you know, like for example, one thing that we do all the time in astronomy is we look at distant supernovae, right? So a, a star will explode in a in a galaxy a billion light years away. And we can see that because these when these stars explode, they're extremely bright. They outshine their whole galaxy. We can see this little blip on the sky. And when we see that, okay, are we looking at that, are we seeing something that happened a billion years ago because it took light a billion years to get to us? So, so in a sense, yes, we're seeing something that happened a billion years ago, but from our perspective that light is only just getting to us now. And there was no way for us to perceive this thing happening in our past. And so it couldn't have affected us in any way until now. So in some sense to us, it doesn't exist until that moment that the light reaches us. That's, that's a concept called causality, where we're, our experience is limited by the travel of information and the information travels at the speed of light. And so the, something that to us is in the past is in the future to somebody else based on where they are mm-hmm. and how quickly the light gets to them. And so we, it's, it's very hard to say this is now because now is subjective. It's, it, it depends on where you are. It depends on how you're moving, um, because if you're moving quickly, then, light tra- then time travels more slowly for you. Um, If you're near a black hole, time travels more slowly for you. So the, the idea of now is very subjective. And so if you picture space time, you know, this this construct of space and time sort of woven together, then where you are in space time, you can be in different positions in space time. And whether you're in the future or the past depends on where you are relative to somebody else in that space time. And so when we think of that supernova that went off. You know a billion years ago but we're just seeing the light now like 10 years ago before we saw that light go off we you know we could have looked at that galaxy and seen that star shining as though it were still alive but it it had really it was really gone by then and so in some sense you know 10 years ago that light was traveling toward us that future was already written right the future for that star was already written because that light was already on its way to us and so, in a sense, the future for that star already existed the the past for for you know the past existed when we were watching the star still shining when it was already gone like what does it mean for future and past to really be separate things if they're all subjective and when you're when you're thinking in cosmological terms, you get real caught up in that
0: yes, because it's sort of like what I can understand from that is. The idea that at least on a material plane, it's difficult to understand a absolute reality, rather a series of interconnected phenomena that have relationships that are somewhat elastic. And also it made me think, Katie, about something I heard once about um, time and space themselves. You know, Once you introduce that, once they're not... Uh, reliable units once you introduce flexibility elasticity and uh, relativity into into those absolutes then don't they become closer to localized customs as opposed to hard rules
1: well what what they become is very subjective right so it it, it what it what happens is that the experience of space and time that one observer has is is going to be very different from the experience of space and time that another observer has, because of their position, because of their velocity, uh, because of where they are in time and in sp- space, and what they're doing. It's it doesn't mean that we can manipulate those things at will, but it does mean that um, that the concept of an absolute now or a an objective observer gets really washed out.
0: Mm, yeah and that idea of objective observers and the impact of observation and the impact of consciousness and panpsychism and whether or not consciousness is an evolved quality or a fundamental quality it becomes very very difficult to have an a, a determined position on any of those things when there is if not fluctuation uh certainly variation um with things like why is there a distinction between dark matter dark energy black holes things that we sort of can't be can't be observed and that we cannot understand and seemingly um really bloody distant far away complex things that we can understand what is it is it that we just got, is it a, a sensory or a mathematical problem like why is dark energy and dark matter something that we can't understand
1: i think it's it's I think it just depends on what uh, what our tools are to observe and and the nature of the things that we're trying to observe. I mean, the problem with dark matter and dark energy, we can observe some things about them. We know where dark matter is and how it acts. We know what dark energy does in our cosmos, but they're both invisible, and we don't we don't know enough about them to know if there's any other way to manipulate them, to to touch them. So with with dark matter, for example, so dark matter is some kind of visible mysterious stuff that seems to hold galaxies together. So our galaxy is embedded in this like clump of invisible matter and that matter has gravity so it, it pulls things in, but it doesn't seem to interact with other things via you know light or it, like we can't see it, it doesn't emit light. It seems like it can pass right through other matter without touching it. Uh, so it's this this weird stuff that has mass but doesn't have any solid form, and Whoa. because of that, like we can we can figure out where it is by how it makes stars move in weird ways through its gravity, or even how it bends space itself, which is a wild thing that space can be bent by the presence of matter, and we can see the effects of that by how light moves through this weirdly bent space, but we can't touch it. Uh, we can't catch it in an experiment. We've, we're trying. There are experiments that are built to try to take advantage of the possibility that dark matter might interact with some other kind of sub, subatomic forces. Uh, but it's 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 just a hard problem. It's just a hard uh, you know experiment. And I think I think we got a little bit unlucky in that most of our universe is made of stuff that's just really hard to observe. Um, you know, we can see a distant galaxy because. That distant galaxy is putting out light and we can detect light with our telescopes so that you know even though it's billions of light years away it's it's giving us something that we can see and we've even we've even been able to detect more subtle more uh, amazing things like we've been able to detect ripples in in the fabric of space itself from black holes colliding a billion light years away like we can see We can see how space itself is stretched and squeezed through the motions of extremely heavy objects far out in distant space because we've built instruments that can measure the shape of spaces so so carefully. But dark matter and dark energy seem to be invisible. They don't wiggle space in the way that we could detect. And they're most of the universe. They're 95% of what the universe is made of, dark matter and dark energy. Dark energy is most of it's around 70% dark matter is around you know 25 or something and then we're this little 5% slice right <laughs> of this of this giant cosmic pie we're like the stuff that we can see and touch and interact with all of the matter that we understand everything we've ever detected in an experiment is part of this this 5% sort of icing on the cake of the universe and the rest of it is is just really hard to observe we have reasons to think it's out there but
0: So even when you're talking about observing something billions of light years away, in a sense, it is just amplification Mm. of vision because it's looking at light. And then when um with dark matter dark energy it's not that it's just not in the spectrum that we can see it's just it's nowhere on the electromagnetic spectrum right. that anything anything could yeah, see it doesn't yeah. exist in that realm. yeah
1: it doesn't it doesn't interact with electromagnetism at all so photons you know light passes right through it of any wavelength
0: how do you discipline your mind not to get like super speculative and like like oh my god in reality we only understand it like we're in this tiny moment of time if there is such a thing of time mm. in this thing called space if there is such a thing as space and even if these things are there they're they're taking place within this vast 5% mm. of an even vaster 100% 95% of which is only speculatively observable due to abstract patterning yeah. doesn't that leave in how does that affect you personally with your uh, personally philosophically I would mean i mean I suppose in your attitude towards religion mm. and uh, the way that we organize societies just two small yeah, questions yeah, there yeah um
1: I mean i I guess the main thing is that uh, you know you asked how i how I discipline my mind to not just sort of Fly off into into speculative territory. I think that I think you do have to speculate a bit when you're in my field, and that's that's how you end up coming up with new ideas. Um, but I think I think at the heart, I'm a very empirical kind of person. Uh, I like I like things I can I can understand with mathematics and have data. To support, right? I like evidence, and so I find so I find the the concept of faith very difficult. For example, because faith is all about not having empirical evidence, right? It's about it's about experiences, maybe, or 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 some kind of um, some kind of speculation, or or some kind of understanding that's that's more abstract, but but not hard data, right? And I'm I'm somebody who I I appreciate hard data and i i I like to to say okay this is what we know these are the concrete things here's what we can extrapolate from that but i find i find faith very difficult because the idea of faith is you're supposed to not have evidence right you're supposed to believe and i've never figured out how to do that how to believe without evidence
0: no i i get very caught between those two attitudes myself i suppose it is somewhat an acceptance of that 95% mm. that you've just described that may beyond the remit not only of our sensory instruments but our very ability to conceptualize and only symbolically understood the way that mathematics is ultimately a cohesive language of symbols mm. and represents like that, a cohesive and inter- deeply interrelated set of symbols. I mean, like. Man, it takes me, Katie, to the point of where I feel like, um, you know, like I've had this conversation with scientists before and I suppose this must be the magnetism of my own um, appetite for narrative but I always feel like it it takes me to some kind of Vedic inner space where Mm I think about devouring gods and goddesses and elemental forces that are interwoven Mm -hmm. as just uh, like you know as just well you will never going to understand this stuff it's beyond you but it's a bit like as if there was a dragon Mm -hmm. that was really
1: really hot
0: or there was this multiple headed thing that's existing in and out of various planes of reality i feel like human i saw on some level you know when you said like you, the moment you talked about uh, ago you talked about sort of intuition like and the relationship between intuition and faith and and i i i too am s- sort of reluctant to like open the door to the deluge of woo woo mm. but like i feel that it's at some point like what what is the element we are dealing with experientially what is this conscious experience that you and i and all of us presumably are having mm. you know what is that fundamentally where does that it, um where is that webbed into right. this this unknowable morass that you are mathematically examining
1: well i mean i think you know what you said about about narrative about stories i think that's that is the 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 fundamental aspect of human nature like we we want narrative we want a story we want we need something to conceptualize all of the things that are happening right like our our experiences and and you know different uh people over time different cultures have had different narratives that that have been used and to to understand the the world around them and and when those are useful um they you know they persist right so um you can you can find patterns in the sky and and assign to those patterns of, of in the stars um you know stories around uh you know uh, goddesses or whatever but if you if you if you can then say okay well when this constellation is rising that's when we plant our crops because of some story but then it actually it works to you know that's when you should plant, plant your crops for for other reasons as well and then you know you get into the science of it um, then it's useful, and for for me, you know, the stories that that work for me are, are mathematical ones, right? So I, uh, we, we as physicists create narratives, create stories that are that are mathematical constructs, and then when those work, when we can apply those and and get a, a useful a useful uh, result out of that, then we then we keep using those those stories. But but it's not, you know, I don't think we're we're really ever. It's not that we have fundamental truth necessarily right like i don't i know a lot of physicists talk about like a theory of everything and getting seeing the mind of god or like you know the fundamental reality i i think that i think that's a hard that's a big ask i think that what we're really doing is we're building tools we're telling stories mathematical stories and then we're trying to find some that are useful that that work to you know match the data but it's It doesn't mean that we necessarily have fundamental reality. And and I don't, I don't think that, uh, I don't have the confidence to say, you know, that we are, we are finding fundamental reality. I I think we are finding useful tools and other people might have other tools that are more useful for them for for conceptualizing their lives. As long as, you know, as long as a tool is useful to you and not hurting anybody, then... You know, you use what resonates, right?
0: How come you got into this?
1: Into science, into physics. Um, yes. Curiosity, you know, the, the, the basic wanting to understand how things work, wanting to get to that deeper level. Um, when I was a little kid, I was the sort of kid who would, you know, take things apart with screwdrivers and, and open things up and see what was inside and take apart the remote control or whatever and try and figure out how it worked. Um, so I, I always just wanted to understand stuff and then, and then when I started learning about cosmology, about black holes and, and time and space and, and, you know, the big bang and all that, that just sounded, that sounded really wild. It was this very sort of brain bending stuff and I wanted to learn more about that and I wanted to, um to see if I could get to the, the fundamentals of that, you know, really understand that. And so it just, it just kind of went from there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: It's a sort of
0: like a mysticism to me, I suppose, because that's, you know, just my favoured world view. Um, you see something like, like a atomic energy, mm-hmm. that a very sort of, well, I suppose, you know, now very, sort of simple principle like that can that that contained within a single unstable atom is enough energy to generate that kind uh like you know a a destructive explosion or to create nuclear energy or whatever um does that does that idea of physics relate to something uh uh, cosmic like the big bang like uh, even on the most rudimentary level that tiny tiny little things can have a lot of energy in them
1: yeah, I mean, you know, the nuclear reactions that um, that we talk about for for nuclear power and stuff those are those are the kinds of reactions that are happening in space all the time in various ways, right? Like, so the usually we're we're talking about nuclear um, nuclear fission, right? Like with with bombs, that's breaking atoms apart. That does happen in space. The more the more common one is nuclear fusion, which people are talking about as a way to to you know use. Energy use uh, nuclear fusion as as a new energy source, right? This is uh, these fusion fusion reactors are, um, when, are the, something that's been on the horizon for years, um, but that's what powers the sun, right? So so uh, bringing atoms together and and getting uh, getting power out of that is is how stars work. It happened in the early universe when the first when the when the universe was was very new. It was uh at the very in the first few minutes of the of the cosmos it was hot and dense and and so hot and dense that nuclear reactions were occurring just in space everywhere so you had uh fusion reactions occurring uh just in ambient space space was so hot and dense that it was a the whole of the universe was a fusion reactor uh and and these these events were occurring so these you know that's just that's particle physics that's nuclear physics and that's uh That's understood kind of everywhere. I mean, we even have uh, there's a nuclear theory group in my department that's studying how stars, when they explode, create new elements, Uh, you know, um, how you get things like iron and nickel and gold and things like that from the explosions of stars.
0: Kind of that is a kind of mutation because there's presumably so many things occurring in that explosion that part of it are recognizable forces and presumably loads of unrecognizable patterns as well that would fall into that 95% oblivion that we're enshrined in. What the hell are they doing in that Hydron Collider? <laughs>
1: um, the so the idea behind the Large Hadron Collider is to try to understand. The, the relationships between particles, the fundamental forces of nature by smashing things together, basically. So the, so if you take two protons, which is what they do, they take two protons, they smash them together as hard as they can in this collider, um, then you're putting a huge amount of energy into a small amount of space. And that will create, like the, the debris from that will create basically any kind of particle that, that a proton could in principle ever interact with. And so you can create just a whole slew of particles and see how they decay, see how they interact with each other and try and learn the relationships between particles, the, the workings of the fundamental forces. And, you know, in a sense, they're also trying to recreate the, the conditions of the very early universe. So even before this, this stage where the universe was so hot and dense, it was a fusion reactor. Even before that, it was so hot and dense that that particles we're interacting individually to make particles that don't even exist now. That we can't even, you know, the the laws of physics were different at the very, very early yeah. universe. And so these colliders are trying to recreate those conditions to better understand physics today. It's kind of like, um, uh, you know, phys- physics is different at different energies. So if you're in a in a very like hot space, like at the center of this collider, it's the physics acts differently than if you're just in You know daily life or whatever it's different at this you know it was different in the very very early universe um the it's kind of like if we really want, want to understand the fundamental nature of how physics works we have to understand it at these different energies we have to sort of test the boundaries of how how particles interact in different conditions kind of like if you wanted to really understand what water was made of you might freeze it and then boil it and see how how it interacts in those different ways and that would tell you something about the the fundamental nature of water it would it would let you understand you know watching it crystallize would let you understand that it's made of you know atoms or molecules that fit together in a certain way Watching it evaporate will tell you something about how those molecules interact when you when you heat them. So if you really want to understand the fundamental nature of water, you don't just look at it as water you you put it through these different uh, you put it in these different conditions. it's the same with physics we, We try and do experiments at different energies to try to understand how particles, like what everything is really made of and and how they fit together.
0: And of course, though, we're trying to understand, as you indicated, what they would have been doing 13.8 billion years ago Mm -hmm. and particles that exist now by their nature are, you know, 13.8 billion years further down the line than those particles. And if you can discover some sort of essential comparison between a particle then and a particle now, that does suggest that there are some physical and material fundamentals, that there is something that is constant. Otherwise those experiments are hard to underwrite.
1: Yeah, I mean what what happens is if you if you can look at the way the way particles now interact and put them in these experiments, you can see how, although the conditions will change, although the interactions will change, there'll be something that's fundamental that's been the same all the time. Some fundamental aspect, some symmetry, you know, that, that really underlies mm. how everything works. And so what we're seeing is, is like the, the low energy version of, of some more complete theory. And if you take it to the high energies, you see the high energy version of that more complete theory. But there is some theory that underlies everything that governs how particles interact in, in these conditions and in the conditions of the early universe 13.8 billion years ago. And we've, if we can recreate that in, an, in a laboratory, then we can start to try and see that bigger picture. And that should be the same. right? The fact that we can do the experiment at all suggests that that bigger picture does exist. And we're just trying to understand what it is
0: you know you said that example about water i've got this bottle of water here it's a cold bottle of water yeah. and the room is quite hot and there's condensation forming yeah. on the outside of the bottle is that like the water is traveling through the bottle as a result of the temperature change and is that something that you would be able to write out as maths so like oh the water was at this temperature
1: so what it's it's the water in the room that's uh, that's gathering on the on the glass but uh, but yeah we could we could you know, we could write down equations for that. We could, we could say, you know, what, uh, what that water is doing. And, and that, so that's, that's the function of the temperature of the water. You've, you've cooled part is of the, the water in the room. Yeah. Yeah. So the condensation. Yeah. So what's happening is that you've, you've made part of your room cold enough that, that the water vapor that, that was in the air is now cooling down and going, turning back into liquid water on the outside of your glass.
0: We are surrounded by limitless miracles and endless interwoven uh, intelligence. Sometimes I think when I see like, um, you know, in various forms of indigenous art, whether it's Celtic or from some place in Africa or Latin America, when you see these sort of repeating patterns that where it seems like people are trying to are painting vibration, seems to me that there's some kind of fundamental reality that we're accessing through consciousness, even if we can't receive it through instruments. I'm very grateful that there's people like you that are absolutely determined to understand it through mathematics, because it's, for me, very beautiful to see how it correlates to the more, I don't know, abstract mm-hmm. understanding of reality that I have.
1: Yeah, I think there's, you know, there are things that the people everywhere share in terms of how we perceive how we perceive the world around us how we perceive the universe and what what resonates with us as people and and so you do see kind of similarities in 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 conceptions of of the universe i mean you even see similarities in the stories we tell about constellations in the sky you know the the pleiades the seven sisters that those are also perceived as as seven sisters in aboriginal cultures in in australia um you know, there's, there's, uh, and not because the story traveled, but just because you know, you see these this group of stars in the sky, and people sometimes tell similar stories. Humans are are, the humans have a lot in common.
0: Katie, thank you very much for coming on here and explaining some scientific and archetypal information, which was at regular interludes easy to understand, <laughs> Good. Uh, and occasionally very. <laughs> very powerfully complex. My favourite bit may well be that I've understood something that I probably should have learned when I was 12 about condensation.
1: I mean, that you know, you, there's there's so much amazing stuff in the universe. It's impossible to hold it all in your head at once. I'm, I learn things every day that, you know, it's, every time I learn a new thing, I feel like I'm just lucky to to have a, a bit more information about the universe.
0: Yeah, well, thank you very much. And I hope that your book, The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking, does well. Thank you. And uh, I hope I get to speak to you further on the uh, the poetry of arithmetic and cosmology.
1: Well, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun.
0: Katie, okay, thank you. Cheers.
1: Thanks. Well, I hope you
0: enjoyed that. Did you? Have you signed up to my mailing list at com? I hope you have, because we're doing these uh, online gigs now, very intimate just a thousand people Uh, and any money raised goes to BAC O'Connor fantastic treatment center in the the middle of this country England help people that can't afford to pay for treatment Jenny perhaps you'll end up there why just mental health issues check out my (laughs) YouTube channel for more spiritual videos and clips from the podcast make sure to subscribe and get notified of new videos we're posting more than ever are we I didn't put that line in Jenny I don't like this <laughs> attitude one bit we're posting it as frequently as, as, as not warranted. as always we're <laughs> pro- as we always. are make sure to subscribe to get notified of new videos we're posting in the standard manner <laughs> get in touch on social media if you want Alright, well thanks for joining us if you want to listen to some more sciencey ones right do you like sciencey ones you could listen to Neil deGrasse Tyson Brian Cox Zaya Tong they all sound like science people with all their <laughs> sort of X and Z names and all of that don't mm-hmm. they Zaya Tong, Brian Cox, Neil deGrasse Tyson. You can imagine them in a shuttle. And thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary.